Hey, did you just have a meeting with a donor and they told you something really, really important and you have no place to put it except for like maybe an Excel spreadsheet or I don't know, a random piece of paper in your office? Go to DonorDoc.com. Get a CRM system that works. Get a donor database system that works. Get something that gives you beautiful reports and beautiful dashboards that even your crankiest board member will love. Go to DonorDoc.com. Use the code word "Do Good Better" at checkout and get a month free. DonorDoc.com. Hey, you busy fundraiser. Yeah, you. Listen, I know you're busy planning an event and you shouldn't have to worry about what software you're using for events and online giving and peer-to-peer fundraising and auctions and mobile bidding and text-to-give. It's all at OneCause, OneCause.com. Listen, I've been using OneCause for a long time with clients all over. It's designed for busy fundraisers. It's intuitive. It's a powerful fundraising solution for your next event and you should be using it. Go to onecause.com. They're a sponsor of the show. They're amazing. They're awesome. And there's free resources galore at onecause.com. Check them out today. Choosing a partner to help you achieve success in your business or personal finances is a big decision. You need a devoted advisor who's experienced and attentive and invested in helping you accomplish your goals. Hey, you know what that sounds like? Brady Martz. Brady Martz knows that you got a lot of options to choose from, but we're confident that Brady Martz is the right accounting firm for you. they got more than a half a century of experience making everyday count through tax, accounting, audit, and business advisory services. So contact Brady Martz to learn more about their unique solutions that they can provide you and your nonprofit. Your organization is awesome, but sometimes you want to be even awesomer. It's time to get your fundraising on with your host, fundraising expert and author, Patrick Kirby. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Kirby. And of course, we talk with people who are going to help our small and medium-sized nonprofits do good better. And I bet you as a nonprofit leader are always thinking about how you can make impact. And I'm sure you're looking at your programs and services, and you're saying, wow, we feed these many people, or we house this many people, or we shelter this many pets, and that's great. But what if you took it a step further? And what if you challenged yourself to sort of look at what impact means, and then that secondary impact, and that third degree of impact? Ah, wouldn't that be great? Probably takes a lot of bit of uh, brain power to kind of walk through it. And that's why we got a great guest today. Uh, I am ecstatic uh, to have a conversation with our guest today, John Stevens. He's the uh, CEO of the BOMA Project. John, welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Uh, super excited to talk with you today. And then we talked a little bit off off, uh, off air was this idea of impact and the scalability of it and and what we kind of rethinking the way that nonprofits approach it. And, and I think the way the BOMA project is set up and the impact that it makes is a really good roadmap on what nonprofits should be paying attention to going forward. And I'm really excited to talk through how you've done it, how you uh, sort of perceive it and what some of these small and medium-sized nonprofits are doing could maybe take under consideration. But before we start all this, Probably people want to know what the BOMA project is. They're looking at this on uh, YouTube or they're finding us on iTunes or Spotify. And they're like, this sounds very interesting. I don't know a lot about it. So could you give us a 5,000 foot view on who you are, what you do and why we're talking today? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, The BOMA project started 2009, really with, you know, an early ambition of ending extreme poverty in the drylands of Africa. And that's a, that's a very bold 
goal. Uh, but, you know, we say there's 400 million, 500 million people in the dry lands of Africa living in extreme poverty. It's a huge population. It stretches all throughout across the Horn and the Sahel and down in the South Central uh, Africa. And it's a population that's mostly pastoralist, right? So they're mostly working in livestock as their primary business. It's a big population. It's a, it's a big, big problem, uh, but one that we felt we could solve. Uh, early days, experimented a bit, then quickly found the graduation approach. Uh, and if you haven't heard about that, that's okay. I spent 15 years in development. I never heard about it. Uh, sometimes I wonder why I never heard about it because it's such a phenomenal model that has this amazing track record in terms of evidence of impact. Uh, we took that model, which originally came out of BRAC in Bangladesh, and tailored it to the places where we work in the drylands of Africa. Uh, and we use this, and this is our, our uh, program model that we're going to bring to scale and try to end extreme poverty in Africa. Awesome. Uh, for those who um, are uh, quickly Googling uh, the graduation uh, yeah. methodology, is there sort of a real quick, like, Pat Kirby brain can function around understanding what that is? Um, yeah. And then maybe some some people are looking at their own pro projects and saying, okay, well, maybe this is something that we could uh, almost use as well. Yeah. So the, you know, that whole title of the methodology is graduation from extreme poverty. So it's a methodology with some interventions that were based on how do you push people out of that really cyclical type of poverty, that extreme poverty where people keep falling back in, you know, they, they make some gains, they have a shock, they fall back in. And fundamentally what it is at, at the core is uh, starting them up with a new livelihood, a new business, as modest as that may be, and then quickly getting them uh, into a savings group or some sort of savings mechanism. And I see these as kind of the two kind of uh, blocks of resilience, right? You've got income coming in and you've got a savings account to help as a shock absorber to whatever shocks might come along. Now, uh, the, the other parts of the graduation approach that are a bit unique uh, are that they use a mentor. So they hire, you know, we hire a mentor from the local area, speaks the language. That person works with our participants throughout the program. And I'll say of, of all the, you know, there are a couple of things that make graduation approaches unique. This is probably the key and, and key for anyone doing any sort of programming is to think about when you have programs with high failure rates, how could you work to, you know, really get those interventions to stick until a certain point and using a mentor or a coach to walk participants through is a key part of that. So you look at the graduation approach, we do a very uh, rigorous targeting process to ensure we're working with the poorest of the poor. We bring them into the program. We have now a 24, 16, and 12-month duration program. Uh, and at the end of this program, the graduation moment is graduating by fulfilling these criteria, predominantly looking at income and savings as big ones. But we also look at food security. You know, we want to know that Great. If you've got income and savings, but the kids aren't eating, something's not right. You know, so they're kind of a type of indicator to help us ensure that the program's successful and that we're really hitting the things that we want to hit, which are ensuring that households are food secure, that uh, mom has money coming in and that the family has the ability to survive and withstand the shock. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And my my brain immediately goes to, all right, so locally or regionally, you're looking at chronic homelessness, for example. Well, this would be right. a wonderful model to sort of say, hey, if this is working in, you know, the, you know, the Saharan, you know, uh, sort of horn world, like there's just mass critical, like uh, unbelievable yeah. poverty. Could this work within uh, our own community to say, because again, I love the accountability piece of a coach or a business partner or, or someone who's going to be there for an accountability piece that some people might not have. It's the same way we go to a therapist. It's the same way we go to a, a physician yeah. every year, right? It's people who are, you know, or a dentist, right? I got a dentist appointment coming up. I'm going to have to start flossing because they're going to yell at me for flossing, right? <laughs> so you almost have this, uh, this, this piece. And, and, and maybe this is just kind of me projecting on what that, what that is, but that will help you think that you are not alone in this and that you're just, yeah. hey, read this book, read this manual. You've got somebody guiding you down a path that not a lot of people know what the destination is because they've never experienced um, uh, exactly. a level of security that you're providing within this program. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we all know the power of mentorship and the power of coaching and, and probably the power that that's played in our lives at different points and how that just kept us in something that we would not have stayed with. Uh, and I think when you get out to the edges of the world and where you're dealing in last mile communities, especially, you know, we work predominantly with women and we are uh, bringing them into this program, kind of going against the grain of everything they've been taught, you know, that they are a powerful business leader in their community and, and they can save money and make decisions. Now, these are big, big changes. We might take these for granted, uh, here in the U.S., but in places like northern Kenya, this is a radical, radical proposition for a woman. So even more important, I think, to have that mentor walking with them side by side because they are going to hit challenges. They're going to hit challenges in terms of how their community may perceive them. They're going to have challenges in their business, uh, and they may just hit snags, you know, as all businesses do, profit and loss, and things don't always go your way. And how do you how do you navigate that so you don't lose the business and keep moving forward? So there's no shortage of real obstacles, um, and you know I think the message broadly for all of us in in the nonprofit world is you look at program success and you look at the challenges you're placing upon people in that program and just saying are you really giving them adequate resources to succeed? You know, and we graduate ninety to ninety five percent of the women on our program, so I could say you know, we've got this phenomenal success rate. Uh, if you're getting less than that, you know, you might want to circle back and talk to the people who dropped out of the program and who start to understand, like, maybe a coach would have helped, maybe not. But, you know, I think just for us, it's it's the key to success of this whole approach is that, that mentor. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that. And I think when, you know, and I think most nonprofit leaders, and especially in the CEO, executive director role, and even then the fundraiser have this little bit of entrepreneurship in their brain, right? It's I'm going to find yeah. a creative way to figure out whatever we need to do programmatically or fundraising wise in order to get revenue to build a to build a program or make impact. And so I think this is going to resonate a lot with people was the audacity of taking on extreme hunger, a part of the need to make something so unique as this impact thing, because I mean, because off offhand, right? We're not Bono, therefore we can't. I, I tell this to to some folks who are in the region, right? You're not taking on global hunger. You're taking on regional hunger or neighborhood hunger. That's something tangible to do. You went the extreme opposite and said, "Not nah, hell with this. We're going to go and do global extreme poverty in this section of the world." What? 
things do you have to think about differently when you're taking on such an like a massive, massive goal that I think most people think on the surface is impossible? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a couple things there. Like, you know, I, I talk to people quite a bit. One of the things I think we need to do is really to reframe what's possible and to be kind of bold enough to say, these things are fixable. You know, I've got a proven model, I've got RCTs behind it, and I've got a price tag. So I can tell you that if I wanted to pretty much end extreme poverty in Africa, I would need between 35 and $40 billion. That probably seems phenomenal until I tell you that we just spent 50 million on Ukraine, which I absolutely believe in, and that's the right thing to do. But you know, reframing a big issue like extreme poverty from something that's like, well, this is just something that will always be there. We can never fix. It'll never go away to actually, here's a program. Here's a price tag. Here's what I need. And and then it's doable. So part of it's just that. And I, I really encourage people, whatever you're working on, put a price tag on it because it may sound phenomenal, But once you do that, it's always going to stay in the conceptual. You need to bring it into the real world as a real problem we can fix, like building a bridge or, you know, dropping $50 billion on a a country that needs it. Uh, Put it in the realm of the real. Uh, And then I think uh, for us, it was then saying, all right, we've got this model. Uh, We don't have to do this. We don't have to be the people that run 500 million people through the program, but we have to influence the the world to see that this can work. So a lot of our work and a lot of our strategy is really based on giving our program model away, teaching others how to implement, be those governments or other big NGOs. Uh, And that's how we influence. And that's how you can hit scale and still kind of say like, yeah, I'm, I'm a small player. Like I'm not the size of the UN, uh, but a single idea can transform uh, an entire sector, you know, and there are billions of dollars at play in philanthropy. So the money's there. There, there are dozens and dozens of massive players who could implement this at scale. That's there. So w- what are they lacking? They're lacking the right idea, you know, and so we can provide that. And again, I would go back to smaller NGOs and say, uh, you can you can kind of get disillusioned if you feel like you yourself are going to have to fix this big, big problem. But you can get uh, more enthusiastic, perhaps, if you say, I can influence how this problem is fixed and really change the whole dynamic of something like world hunger or extreme poverty or, or some of these other mega, mega issues that are almost kind of hard to conceive how we approach those. Well, I, I, I love this for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, Again, I like big, hairy, audacious goals. That's one of the things that I think it, that it, it, that's an inspirational piece to a lot of people. Like, why do they get up in the morning? Well, I'm going to solve this. Like, that's that's crazy. Right. But I also think that there is the only groups who can solve this, I think, at scale are the nonprofit realms. Government can't fix that because they got other, they got a litany of other things they gotta they gotta worry about, and they're always pulled in different directions. Like Ukraine, for example, like everything can be going picture perfect. And you're and you're got this game plan going, and all of a sudden, oh, well, now we got to deal with this, you know, megalomaniac uh, moron here yeah. dealing yeah. with this, and we got to shift priorities and, and budgets and that kind of thing. Um, but the but the interesting part about this too is you've now created this open source business model that people right. get to take it, and that's almost akin to how you know almost Tesla opened up, or or at least the SpaceX project said, hey, we're going to give you the the here's how we build these rockets. And all of a sudden, all these um, 
super nerds on the internet are finding out ways to help out build this, you know, these right, rocket systems right. that that now Tesla and and and, uh, and and they're building these things in real time from the open source. Of, here's the things that we're doing. Have let's yeah. help us uh, build this thing too. And I I find that's that is so unique and entrepreneurial. And imagine if you're taking this back to your community and saying, okay, we've got an idea on how to solve homelessness within our city, the city of Fargo, right? It's cold mm-hmm. nine months out of the freaking year. Here's how we solve it. Here's the price tag on it. Here's what we need to do. And now you're engaging rather than trying to shelter out and say, oh, we need this grant. We need this grant. We need this money. Like that's the yeah. unique turn here that I just love about this, John. Well, I think, you know, one way folks can get there and, and think about that too, because I don't expect that everyone goes the direction we go. Uh, but I do think it's critical that when you, you start an organization to solve a problem, you also answer the question, you know, what's your end game? Like, yes. What are you ultimately yeah. trying to do? There's not a whole lot of literature out there about that, but there's a fantastic article written by Alice Gugulev and Andrew Stern, I think was the other writer, uh, outlining kind of the options for, all right, let's say your idea is incredibly successful. How does it end? You know, you've got to think about that at the beginning to really uh, know that you're going the right direction and to do that, do that kind of the right way. So I, I send that article to people, I don't know, a couple times a week uh, because I love it. And it was hugely influential for us as well, saying, well, you know, ultimately we want to influence the whole industry, governments and big NGOs to adopt this, like that's success. And then we're done. Um, but that answer may be different for other folks. And I think it's it's so good. Uh, and this is an exercise you can do with your board to say, hey, we need to stop for a second, understand our end game, and make sure we're on the right track, make sure we're not kind of getting distracted by other types of success that might be valid, but actually aren't really, you know, um, moving the needle on, on the problem we want to solve. Well, it's, it's great. It's a great reminder on why you exist as an organization and that you shouldn't be around forever. Like it's right. okay to go under because you solved whatever problem that you were supposed to be. You did it. And I, and, and yeah. you know, we, to take big, hairy, audacious steps in a direction of like that, like they said, tangible things you can go uh, for. We will link that article in the show notes, Great. folks, so that we can have that again. And I think that's an important one. I I, I remember uh, uh, really surface ending, like I think I read Cliff Notes version of the whole thing. And, I, and But it's a good reminder. And we forget about that a lot because we're in the moment of like, okay, now this little issue has become a big issue and we get away from what on earth is our purpose? And and when yeah. you know you, you think about how do I start imagining this thing? Well, what if your organization goes away now? Like then I mean, that's that's a good way to think about like what's your plan for the future? Is is if you eliminate and you stop now, what happens? Right. And if your answer is a whole lot of people are going to be um, in real serious trouble. Okay, well now you got a a roadmap on how you fix this. Yeah. ultimately to your end game, which is really great. What is what is the end game for Boma? Uh, then and and it, what's the end game for? Is it just within a certain country? Is it within an entire mm-hmm. region, or does it grow bigger than that? Yeah, so I think you know where we see an end game in a place like Kenya, where you have a functioning government with social safety nets and an adequate tax re, you know revenue, they could 
uh, tackle extreme poverty. And I think it's really uh, the, the responsibility of governments to protect their citizens and to invest in them. Um, and in Kenya, we're working with the government. We're training them to say, you know, stop handing out food, stop handing out cash transfers unless it's absolutely necessary. And instead, you know, build yourself a, a two-year runway and let's start investing in people, getting them resilient so they're off your rosters. So when that drought comes, you're not just driving trucks out into the desert feeding folks. So in places like Kenya, Ethiopia, um, probably Nigeria, and a few other places, uh, that's that's what we're steering towards. And a lot of other countries, we just know that's not happening for some time, that the governments just aren't functional enough and that big NGOs and big aid is going to be in there. So in that case, we're working really targeting those big NGOs to adopt our philosophy and, and the program model and to build that at scale, you know, because they've got massive fundraising, right? And they can call down hundreds of millions from the UN or USAID. Uh, but unless they're, you know, implementing something like the graduation approach, I'm, I'm going to be bold enough to say they're just going to be back there every year doing the same thing because they're not building resilience. They're not creating self-reliance and able to just step away from folks and say, you're on your own now. That's what we need. That's what we need aid groups to really just say like their end game should be that people don't need their help, right? So how do you get there? What's the, the fastest, cheapest way to get there? You know, we think we've got a great uh, proposition for that. And that's what we pitch to big NGOs when we talk to them. What have you found that's unexpected, uh, either positive or negative, I think, going through some of these approaches? Because I'm imagining it's not all sunshine and rainbows, and I'm imagining that you've right. gone through some pitfalls. But is there any unexpected, either positive or negative, that has come out of either either graduation approach or the way that you that BOMA has aligned itself with like, okay, we've got this mentor program. This is great. Um, oh, crap. Didn't see this one coming. Yeah, well, I think, you know, something uh, like COVID-19 wasn't on our radar, right? And so we had been building for like, there's there's kind of small scale droughts that happen in East Africa, and we'd been modeling around those and what you need to survive. And then something like the pandemic came and just took everything sideways. And the way those kind of the way governments reacted were different in different places. Uh, for example, in Kenya, they they said, you know, groups over 10 people couldn't gather. So it just totally changed the way we would have to program. They shut down transportation oftentimes, which shut down markets and food delivery. So we just had all these different issues uh, that we needed to contend with. Um, you know, in some ways, it was uh, a good test on our resilience as an organization where we had to step back and say, how do we keep people in the program? How do we keep these businesses going? We just got hit with a major shock, which is going to last anywhere from three weeks to three years, right? You know, those early days of the pandemic. I mean, I remember people saying like, man, two weeks without going to a restaurant, this is going to be tough. And of course, three years later, we're like, yeah, we're not done yet. Um, so really volatile, right? Hard to predict. Um, things like that are, are big issues. Uh, you know, some of the other issues we've been hearing, you know, lately from groups and we're working with man, about 29, almost 30,000 women this year right now, uh, in those communities. And I go up there every few months, um, you know, they talk about the men, 
and the boys. And they're, you know, most of our programs work with women because they're, you know, if you get women into the program and they're successful, we see immediate impact on the families and children and food security. Uh, but I think at the same time, they're saying, you know, you can't neglect the boys, the uh, young young men in the community that they they need something to do otherwise that's going to be a problem so a little bit of you know looking at how do we make sure we're not uh putting too much um emphasis just on working with women uh, to the neglect of perhaps another group in those communities that could be could open up some other problems um but yeah you always find there's always stuff happening up there that that's kind of amazing uh and and a lot of it good, you know, a lot of it, uh, I've met with women before who, uh, just into our program and with some seed capital from the grant we give them, but also the self-confidence from the mentorship, they're just off and running, you know, they're like, they're mavericks and, uh, they're very savvy and all they really needed was a bit of confidence and some cash in their pocket to really take advantage of that. So sometimes you, you find really amazing things and it's great as well. Is there um, is there a challenge with infrastructure and technology and access to to, to that? Is sort of a, a communication uh, piece there? How do you overcome that? With a again, this is a very technically impactful sort of thing. You're beaming in, you know, brains from all over the the globe yeah. with this. And how does that affect at least the rollout of programs? Because I'm looking at, you know, again, trying to figure out in your local, small, medium-sized nonprofit, you're probably overcoming a couple of things. Well, it's not as dramatic yeah. and big as I'm imagining this is. And how do you overcome that? Yeah, you know, Kenya is an interesting location. I think, uh, when you go back to Africa, you go into some of these countries, a lot of them have made huge strides in infrastructure uh, and communications that really expand the potential of your programming. So for example, you know, Kenya has M-Pesa, which is mobile money. Uh, most people have feature phones or smartphones. They can both trade money and communicate. Um, so that's a great advantage for BOMA because we put our mentors out in the field. They all have tablets. They're all collecting information daily uh, and all that information comes up into our dashboard so we have almost the same day visibility on program performance that's not possible in every country uh, but it's becoming more possible um, so it's a huge advantage for us uh, to, to utilize that at the same time uh, you know a lot of the women on our program especially if they're a bit older are illiterate uh, and and they can't manage transactions, and there are some limits to what we can do in terms of business or business growth uh, with them, and how they you know need extra coaching to kind of get through that. So, uh, you know, I I think it's it's great though. Uh, you go back to Africa, you just see there's so many new opportunities coming up with technology that that absolutely nonprofits need to be taking advantage of because there's huge cost savings. There's a little bit of upfront investment, but then huge cost savings and improvements in program performance and monitoring that come from uh, being able to tap into this great comm system and the fact that you can get Wi-Fi or cell reception almost every part of Kenya, right? So it, it really helps out. When when we're talking about nonprofits and kind of, we use the term, uh, we've, we've always done it, around here yeah. that's the worst phrase ever we all hate it yeah. we get it but when you're when you're kind of talking through or you are looking at your own local or regional nonprofits to embrace something like this ide ideology right this ideology yeah. of 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 extreme impact 
and thinking a little bit differently. How does a nonprofit, small, medium, local, regional, flyover country, North Dakota, whatever that may be, how do, how do you start the imaginative process of looking at your own impact and saying, okay, how do we take something like the BOMA project as I'm listening to this today and implement something, a first step, mm-hmm. a glance to give us a little bit of a taste of like, oh, that could be huge. That could be fun. Uh, almost, uh, you know, sort of deal us a little bit of, of, of some of that structure so that we can get a taste of how we can do some of these big things in our own small community. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, so I, I'd say a couple different things. Um, on the one hand, nonprofits really need to recalibrate who they are. You know, uh, unless you're a charity and you're just handing things out and that's what you want to do, and, and that's fine. Um, but if you have bigger aspirations uh, and you want to really improve people's lives and transform their lives, you need to start talking about your work differently. And and I say that because, you know. You look at the investments that are um, expended in the private sector around technology, right? You go to a company and you see their budget for like a new finance system. The way they talk about investing in their infrastructure to deliver their work or deliver their products is massively higher than how we normally do in nonprofits. So again, I think you need to reframe and reframe with your donors specifically that This is not a charity. This is not a handout. We're not working for free. We're going to deliver transformational change in the people's lives. And that requires a bunch of things. And and investments in technology, I'd say, are one of the key areas where nonprofits under-resource themselves to their own detriment, right? Then they're out there with pencil and paper recording things, spending huge amounts of money, very ineffective, uh, when really they should be having a different conversation with the donor saying, hey, I need to accelerate impact. I need to accelerate the pace at which uh, we're working and understanding the impact of our work. I need a half million dollars to invest in that over five years. You know, help me get there and help me become a better organization. Um, but I think, uh, you know, going back then to kind of a broader lens about, you know, maybe what's that first diagnostic for a nonprofit right now? You know, I think it's going back and saying, what's my end game? What am I really trying to achieve? Figuring that out, uh, stepping back again and saying, what am I trying to solve? You know, and if there's not absolute clarity on the problem you're solving for, uh, you need to go back and figure that out. Because until you have those two pieces there, I think you can drift. And and that's just not uh, a place where you're going to get meaningful traction. Once you have clarity on that problem, then then to me, it's about saying, well, how do I solve for that problem? How do I honestly say I'm going to solve that problem. And that's where your metrics start to come out. So, you know, for BOMA, like what I talk about is uh, transformational impact at meaningful scale. You know, those are these two kind of principles I talk to the team about a lot. So what is transformational impact? I mean, you could, you could debate that a bit, but I'm trying to create transformation in someone's life, taking them out of the most destitute and deadly form of extreme poverty into uh, prosperity. I'm not saying I'm going to make them rich. I'm not saying they're going into the middle class after my program. I'm just saying I'm solving for destitute poverty. There's a dollar value there that the World Bank says anyone earning less than a buck 90 a day is in extreme poverty. Great. I'll get them past that line. And I'm going to come back 
three and five years after the program ends and make sure that most of the people are still moving forward. You know, that's that transformational uh, quality. And I think you define that and you defend it. Um, and then I talk about meaningful scale and, you know, I use a, a story about the COVID epidemic and I said, Hey, transformational vaccines, right? Uh, Pfizer, Moderna, that, that kept people alive. That was transformational. Uh, but had they only produced a thousand of those vaccines, no dice that that's, you can only, uh, you can't do half of the equation there. What's the meaningful scale? Well, I need 5 billion doses and I need them in about six months, right? So it's, it's having, uh, that impact, that model, but having the scale to really uh, address the issue in that population you're serving in a meaningful time frame. Uh, and so those, you know, those are our two kind of guiding principles there with that, that program piece around impact and scale. I think if a nonprofit can ask and answer those questions, uh, they're going to be on the right track. I think the scale piece is such an important model here because I think even I even even some of the smaller groups that kind of they know what they want to do or what they want to grow yeah. but I think they're scared to have the conversation about scale because scale is a is a number that they've not had with their donors or supporters or funders um, and what I think you said is really so important is even if you're just having the conversation with your donors you're turning you're turning the page you're getting you're you're taking that one step is just saying it out loud right you talk about you heard how many times you heard manifesting, right? I'm manifesting whatever my dreams and things are. Yeah, you are, but you say it out loud because all of a sudden, like we said earlier, you put a number to it, you put a destination to it, you put an end game to it. And unless you say it out loud, your donors are going to guess, or they're going to default back to what they originally gave you, or they've been consistently giving you uh, forever more. And they're never going to change because you've never adjusted the conversation in the first place. And if you do nothing else, then just talk with your donors about the possibilities of fixing whatever this is in a bigger terms and more bold conversations. My goodness gracious, you're going to yeah. do the same thing over and over again. So I so appreciate um, that as a as a as a scale piece. I think that's really the most uh, valuable insight that I think any nonprofit can sort of take away. Um, I know that everybody's going to want to know what BOMA is doing and really want to follow the things that you are either working on or the conversations you're having or the verbiage you're using as they can sort of mm -hmm. take and absorb mm -hmm. some of these things, but they might not know where to go or what to do. And when they get there, what does BOMA need? All the things. I would love all the things, John, on how we get together with you or how we find uh, BOMA, the BOMA project and how do we help? And then how do we learn a little bit about more what you do? Yeah. Uh, BOMAproject.org is the, the first spot I'd say go to. We've got all our methodology there and, and uh, all the reports and research we've done. Um, that's a great place to learn. And outside of that, there's, you know, if you type in the graduation approach or the graduation approach to end extreme poverty, you'll find a wealth of information. There are a number of groups that practice this methodology around the world, including BRAC, still practicing and really one of the big players uh, in the industry. Um, you know, for BOMA, what is a little bit different now than what you might be seeing on the website, I think, is just uh, how much we've been expanding. So we were lucky enough to get a, a big grant from Mackenzie Scott last year, which really supercharged uh, 
uh, our whole strategy uh, and our expansion. So, you know, we've been looking at, you know, again, hitting that scale of where we need to be and where we want to work, uh, expanding out now to 10 different countries across the Horn and the Sahel. Um, but then really looking at, you know, this original model we had uh, for the graduation approach, which is called REAP. Uh, you know, and, and that primarily was built to serve uh, women living in very last mile pastoralist communities. Uh, but then, you know, broadening out and saying, well, and this is a word that's used a lot, but it's a good one. It's that resilience and that resilience lens. You know, it's does the way we're thinking about income and savings adequately describe the self-reliance state we're trying to create? And is there a kind of a broader resilience definition we need to be thinking about? So, you know, we said that we didn't say we had it nailed or perfectly answered. We just said, this is kind of a strategic ambition. We think we need to think a little more broadly about this and we need to widen the lens of people who come into the program. So we've branched out uh, with programs that look a little more closely at nutrition, not just food security, but nutrition. We've got programs working with young people, both men and women, uh, typically in more peri-urban areas. Uh, and we've got a program uh, that's really looking at not just kind of adapting to climate change, but tackling climate change, which I think is really unique. Uh, kind of for the first time, we're saying, how could women living in extreme poverty actually contribute to carbon drawdown? How could they participate in tree planting or protecting forests or other types of natural resource management? Mm -hmm. And, you know, my feeling is that people who live in these environments where climate change is having maybe the most severe impacts, uh, they're, they're, they're paying the, the price probably for the rest of the globe's um, you know, emissions and things like that. How do we include them to be active participants? And how could we think about them as benefiting from all the carbon finance that's out there and really, you know, putting that money into their pocket and help helping them build a more resilient life in these places where they live and work. So that's a big focus of what we're doing. It's it's really exciting because I think it's a it's a novel approach. You know, it's really putting uh these people at the heart of the solution and letting them benefit. And it's one that I hope you know, uh, my feeling kind of going back to that price tag, uh, there's limited philanthropic dollars. If we can include other types of revenue streams, carbon finance, carbon credits, we increase the amount of money available for these programs. So that that part's really exciting. I would be disappointed if anything wasn't as audacious as having your own participants participating in something as audacious as also solving the climate change issue as well. <laughs> that seems to be on brand with the BOMA project. And I would encourage everybody to go there. We're going to drop all the links in the show notes and do it. If you do nothing else, just read up on the stories, uh, see how they tell the stories look at the visuals that they use for the impact numbers that they've got, whether it's a letter from John, you know, sort of stating out like, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's our update letter, which you should be doing, their annual reports, whatever it is, take in all of the stuff that they're putting out there and attaching numbers to it. It is brilliant. I'm sure it's not a rip off and duplicate thing, but please look at what, because that's, I think, a lot of the future of uh, of making sure that your nonprofit is sustainable and up to date with paying your having your donors pay attention is doing exactly uh, what the Boma Project is doing or something very similar to it because it's brilliant and it's amazing and this has been one of my favorite uh, interviews so far, John. It's been great. 
Uh, so awesome. do yourself a favor, everybody, uh, at the end of the show, go to the show notes and do this. And by the way, where you're clicking around the internet, if you haven't, you know, uh, followed this show yet, uh, what are you? You're behind the times too. You're behind. So get over there, subscribe, and send it to your friends. This is the kind of conversations that we're having here on the official Do Good Better podcast. John, thank you so much for your time and your perspective. Uh, it has been an absolute uh, pleasure chatting with you. Really awesome to get to know kind of the impact and the and the process by which the Boma Project is working on. Uh, but more so. Thanks for being a guest here today on the official. Absolutely. Do good, better Absolutely. Fun. Loved it. Look, as someone who listens to the show, you know that I love helping small and medium-sized nonprofits. That's why we bring on the awesome experts and guests that get to talk to you about how to make your organization more awesome. So I've got a deal for you. I would like to help you. I would like to work with you. So if your go-to do gooduniversity.com. That's do good y-o-u-niversity.com. And you register for one of the courses. I'm going to send you my best-selling book, Fundraise Awesomer, a practical guide to staying sane while doing good for free. Because I really want you to do amazing work. Listen, dogooduniversity.com. Go pick out something, whether it's a board training or a gratitude training or whatever webinar you want to choose. Um, use the promo code podcast, take 25% off of anything that you purchase. And I'm going to throw in a book as well, because I want you to do awesome. I want you to do awesomer and I want you to do good better. Go to dogooduniversity.com today. Hey, did you just have a meeting with a donor and they told you something really, really important and you have no place to put it except for like maybe an Excel spreadsheet or I don't know, a random piece of paper in your office? Go to DonorDoc.com. Get a CRM system that works. Get a donor database system that works. Get something that gives you beautiful reports and beautiful dashboards that even your crankiest board member will love. Go to DonorDoc.com. Use the code word "Do Good Better" at checkout and get a month free. DonorDoc.com. Hey, you busy fundraiser. Yeah, you. Listen, I know you're busy planning an event and you shouldn't have to worry about what software you're using for events and online giving and peer-to-peer fundraising and auctions and mobile bidding and text to give. It's all at OneCause, OneCause.com. Listen, I've been using OneCause for a long time with clients all over. It's designed for busy fundraisers. It's intuitive. It's a powerful fundraising solution for your next event and you should be using it. Go to onecause.com. They're a sponsor of the show. They're amazing. They're awesome. And there's free resources galore at onecause.com. Check them out today. Choosing a partner to help you achieve success in your business or personal finances is a big decision. You need a devoted advisor who's experienced and attentive and invested in helping you accomplish your goals. Hey, you know what that sounds like? Brady Martz. Brady Martz knows that you've got a lot of options to choose from, but we're confident that Brady Martz is the right accounting firm for you. they got more than a half a century of experience making everyday count through tax, accounting, audit, and business advisory services. So contact Brady Martz to learn more about their unique solutions that they can provide you and your nonprofit.